Good to be here at Bethany Community as Daniel's over with our flock at Living Hope Community Church. And many of you know that I come to you from Bartonville. And uh, so, you know, the only way that you can get over here to paradise from Bartonville is to cross the river, right? You knew that. And uh, the favorite bridge that I choose to bring me over is that McCluggage Bridge. So I snake down on the south side of Peoria so I can come over that way because I love the view. I think it's somewhat breathtaking and uh, sort of reminds me of how my mom would make uh, my two brothers and I hold our breath whenever we would go over bridges. I think uh, she was trying to get a little quiet in the car while we did that, but uh, uh, anyway, it was always a great challenge. I don't know that I passed that on to my kids, but uh, um, it is great to be with you this morning. And I want to talk to you about a bridge, begin with a bridge of a, another type. Um, in 1869, uh, Johann August Roebling began one of the great engineering feats known to man, the suspension bridge known as the Brooklyn Bridge. Roebling had created other bridges of similar design, but perhaps none having the impact and importance of this bridge connecting the boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn spanning the East River. It had been dubbed at one point the eighth wonder of the world. Has anyone ever been there, taken that? I've never. I, I've just seen it on TV. Anyone? No? Not, not very many of us. The bridge was, at its inception, the longest suspension bridge in the world. It took 14 years to complete. It cost $15 million, a, a substantial sum, in 1869 at its finish. And it cost more than 20 lives during the construction. Initially, New York authorities charged a toll to cross the Brooklyn Bridge, one cent for foot traffic. Do you even carry pennies anymore? Five cents for a horse, ten cents for a horse and wagon. Farm animals were assessed five cents per cow and two cents per sheep and hog. I don't know how they paid. I don't know what their, uh, what their means were. Uh, but due to later legislation, the toll was eliminated for walkers and drivers, making it free to cross the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know if you knew this, but Roebling, the designer of the Brooklyn Bridge, died in the earliest parts of the construction. He was standing at the fixed location where the bridge would be built, taking measurements, and his foot was crushed by an incoming ferry. He died 14 days later from tetanus. I want to suggest to you that there are some amazing spiritual parallels here to what Jesus has done for humanity. Just as the Brooklyn Bridge spanned a gap that could not previously be crossed, Jesus has spanned the great unpassable divide between a holy God and sinful mankind. As Roebling died in the building of an all-important bridge, one that would change the lives of many, Jesus died creating the bridge between God and men, a bridge that would change countless lives for all of eternity. And finally, just as the toll was eliminated, making it free to pass from Brooklyn to Manhattan, Jesus' death 
paid the price, the toll as it were, for crossing from sin, separation to eternal life with our loving God. Bridges serve as a great picture of spiritual realities. Just as bridges link two points that were previously difficult or impossible to connect, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ makes it possible for the sinner to enter into God's kingdom. And just as bridges change the lives of those who would use them in many ways and have transformational impact on the communities where they are built, so also the cross of Jesus transforms those who rely upon it and intends to transform the communities where those who rely upon the cross dwell. This is what we want to consider this morning. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, to the earliest parts of the message that we know as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As you turn there, let me explain why I've chosen this passage this morning. At our church, at Living Hope Community Church, we've been giving a lot of thought to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and what God expects here and now of those who have become kingdom citizens. And I believe this passage clarifies what a kingdom citizen looks like, what are essential attributes of the one or those who have passed from death to life by taking the cross of Jesus Christ to span that unpassable divide. I believe this passage clarifies and gives us the essence of what kingdom citizens look like. Uh, If I were to summarize this passage for you, verses 1 through 20, in a way that you would walk out the door saying, okay, I think I understood the main point. I would say this, because Jesus calls sinners to enter into His eternal kingdom, those who have accepted that call experience transformation. It is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven without experiencing transformation. It is what we call being born again. It is what we call the new life. It is what we call becoming a new creation in Christ. And so those who have passed into the kingdom of heaven have experienced this transformation, and now they become, they are intended to become agents of transformation. This transformation results through recognizing and acquiring God's righteousness found by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by our own works, okay? And so this morning as we work our way through these 20 verses quickly, we are going to look at realities or essential characteristics of kingdom citizens, citizens of God's kingdom. And the first essential attribute, the reality that we first see in this passage is that a citizen of the kingdom of heaven experiences personal transformation first. Again, it is part of what we say happens when one becomes born again. When Jesus, the King of the kingdom, uh, was teaching this, what He is indicating to us and to His original audience in verses 3 through 12 are these characteristics of kingdom citizens 
In other words, Jesus isn't teaching that these are attributes that a person should strive to acquire if he or she wants to enter the kingdom of heaven. But instead, these are attributes, these are characteristics that describe those who have become citizens of God's kingdom. Because these attributes are vastly different from the fallen nature of man as described by God's infallible Word, it leaves us only to conclude that citizens of God's kingdom already have experienced personal transformation. They do that first. So let me read along here. These are what we know as the Beatitudes. We could actually uh, spend one sermon each on each and every one of these, but because I'm a guest speaker and my goal is to convince you that these are essential attributes of God's kingdom citizens, I want to summarize these characteristics that mark kingdom citizens for us this morning. If I were to distill verses 1 through 12 down into one word, it would be the word humility. Those who have become citizens of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ have experienced a transformation that could be summarized by the word humility. They have become humble. Now, even as I say that, please understand that none of us has fully arrived. None of us has become as humble as we ought, as humble as we would, but it still marks everyone who has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we read first when Jesus tells us, blessed, verse 3, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of the most glorious things about the eternal kingdom is that it will be the most humble place on earth. There will be no braggarts there. The only boasting will be to boast in the cross of Christ to which we have been reconciled to God. The the eternal kingdom will not be humble because everyone lacks abilities or talents. No one has anything to brag about. You will be you in your glorified status with your gifts and talents that God has given you fully transformed, but it will be humble because you no longer will be tempted to boast in yourself, but only in Jesus Christ. And because of that, Jesus says, those who inhabit that kingdom will be poor in spirit. This statement of poverty is not the kind of poor that we think of where we're working class poor, we're living uh, hand to mouth on an existence where we live paycheck to paycheck. Many of us may even have experienced that or experienced that here and now, but this is not that type of poor. This is the poor that we would consider destitute, even those who we would characterize as being homeless. This is a poverty of spirit, however. This is a poverty that says there is nothing that I can offer to God that would cause Him to accept me into His kingdom. You see, those who have become kingdom citizens have experienced this sense of spiritual poverty where they no longer think that they can offer something to God in order to enter kingdom, enter the kingdom of heaven, rather. How do we know that kingdom citizens will be marked by humility because they are poor in spirit? But secondly, they mourn. 
they mourn over their sin. Friends, we, we need to understand, and perhaps we've even experienced ourselves, that when, when sin is pointed out, the proud heart will become angry. When our sin is pointed out to us, when our sin is detected, if we are proud of heart, we will respond in anger. We will respond with a heart that wants to justify ourselves. But the kingdom citizen is much different. The kingdom citizen is filled with humility and actually mourns over their sin. They are those whose heart has been broken because they understand that they have sinned perhaps against others, but against God first and foremost. And because of that, they are humble and they mourn over their sin. How humbling it is for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ to consider that in order for them to be brought near to God, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might receive His righteous standing through faith in Him. Kingdom citizens are marked by humility in that they have become gentle. Look at verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek, we often uh, think of as weak, but that is not what the word meek means. As we know in some of our translations, another way to translate the word meek is gentle. A gentle spirit is one that does not need to fend for itself in those situations where they feel like they have been wronged in a serious matter. Instead, they are gentle. They are allowing God to be their shield, their protector. They are the one who does not need to strike out for themselves and get what they want in this life because they are waiting on the Lord. They are trusting in the Lord. They are adopting this spirit of gentleness or meekness. My mom would tell the story of when I was three years old and she had a stallion who was born one week before me and so he was three years old also. I don't know, 19 or 21 hands, however they measure horses. Never quite understood how they did that. But anyway, he was a large horse and he was tethered to the grain bin and I went out there thinking that he should not be eating the corn that lay at the base of the, the grain bin. And so I began to pound on his hindquarters as a little three-year-old. Are you getting the picture? And my mom looked out the window of the kitchen at the sink, and she saw this, and she said her heart just dropped because she knew that that was the end for me. The stallion had every reason to kick me to kingdom come. But that gentle power under control stallion just let me move him around as he swished me with his tail. That hurts. That is a picture of gentleness. We are those that even as we are um, brought to this place where we could react, we are trusting God. How many times has your, uh, has your reputation been sullied by the world and you are tempted to, to strike out on your own, but then you hear, the thoughts that God is my shield, God is my protector, God knows. Jesus said, blessed are those who have come to this humble place of having a gentle spirit. An abiding desire for God's righteousness, hungering and thirsting for it as it were, reveals 
the humility of the kingdom citizen. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friends, here and now, those who have experienced transformation through the gospel and have become citizens of God's kingdom don't expect their lives to be perfect in this age. And yet we groan inwardly, often discouraged that there are still sinful longings within us, still desires bubbling to the surface of our heart, craving to be free from this body of sin is what the one who has become a kingdom citizen experiences. They are humble. They see their inward sin. They see the sin in the world around them, and they groan inwardly, craving that the world would be made right, that they, their own hearts would be made right. Verses 7, 8, and 9 point to transform people who have been shown mercy and therefore show mercy to others, whose purity of heart causes them to desire good for others rather than selfish ambition, and who have experienced peace with God through justification by faith and therefore want to promote that same peace with God to the lost world around us. You see, verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Humility allows us to be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Humility realizes that the transformation we have experienced, not everyone has. And therefore, we want others to experience it. Humility desires that others come to that same justification by faith in Christ that brings peace with God that is set forth there in verse 9. All of these intentions of the transformed people of the kingdom point to humility. A humility that is willing to suffer persecution and reproach from those who hear our call for repentance and faith in order to gain access to God's eternal kingdom. I trust that you can see that this whole 12 verses, this whole passage could be characterized or summarized by humility. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you to consider this? Have you, you who claim to have gained citizenship in the eternal kingdom, have you experienced to some degree or another this humbling, this transformation, this humility? Would others who know you, who knew you before even you claimed to trust Christ, affirm that there has indeed been a transformation? Friends, we will be, each of us at varying degrees, those who have trusted in Christ, uh, experiencing humility, a growing humility in our lives. And we can go up and down. We can waver in it. But we do want the Holy Spirit, the power of God's Word to, to convict us and take us on to a growing level of maturity. And I believe that verses 10 through 11 that talk about being persecuted for righteousness, that talk about being blessed for persecution. I believe that they are part of what we, even though they are part of what we call the Beatitudes, they are also serving as a transition into this next characteristic or this next mark, this next essential attribute of kingdom citizens. And that is that kingdom citizens are, when they're striving to not be ashamed of the gospel, they will willingly testify 
to Christ, even suffering persecution on some levels. And that indicates to us the second mark, that a citizen of the kingdom of heaven becomes an agent for community transformation next. Becomes an agent for community transformation. When the Brooklyn Bridge was completed, because it was a new style of bridge, because bridges of this magnitude were still relatively a new phenomenon, the people of New York were tentative. They were uncertain uh, that it would be strong enough, that it would be stable enough to hold all the traffic. Uh, for uh, the, the grand opening, countless numbers of cars passed over and great amounts of weight passed over, but six days after the opening, there was an accident. A woman fell down the stairwell in the approach, and it caused a stampede because of the tentativeness that killed 20 people. And because of that, the Brooklyn Bridge became viewed as un, uh, unworthy, un, untrustworthy. Until P.T. Barnum was hired to take his elephants, there was this well-regarded theory that an elephant uh, has the intuitiveness to be able to discern whether or not a structure will hold its weight before it passes over. And so P.T. Barnum was hired to take 21 of his elephants to march across the Brooklyn Bridge to restore the confidence of the people to use that bridge. Unbelievers around us need to be assured that the cross is a worthy bridge to rely upon, that the cross is able to sustain those who rely upon it, able to satisfy even those who use the cross of Jesus Christ to enter the eternal kingdom. Jesus said that He is the way to the abundant life, and those who rely upon Jesus experience that abundant life and become agents of community transformation, having become personally transformed themselves. You and I are now called to become agents for community transformation next. Look at verse 13. Boy, it's quiet in here. Can a kid just, can a, is there a baby in here who can cry or something? Just kind of let me know that you're here. Okay, good. Okay, that's enough. That's the, okay. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I don't know how you feel about salt, but I love salt. I'm going to make a confession. The Scriptures say confess to one another. I won't call it a sin, but I drink pickle juice. I'm only embarrassed when we have people over and my kids say, hey, didn't you drink out of that pickle jar? <laughs> In fact, there are things that I enjoy eating because they become an excuse for me to eat salt with them, like tomatoes, right? And we sometimes think that this is what Jesus means, that we are to spice up life for all those around us, that we are to make life more tasty as Christians. Uh, but salt is tasty, but that isn't the property that Jesus is pointing to or focusing on here, nor is it the aspect of salt that makes 
people thirsty, uh, we should have a sense of our lives doing that as well. But what Jesus is focusing here when He calls us salt of the earth is that salt preserves from corruption. Jesus is pointing to the fact that Christians are the salt of the earth, the, and, and He wants us to understand uh, salt that preserves, salt that is a preservative, pr- protecting from decay, from quick deterioration, even more so in Jesus' day than ours when there was no refrigeration. Salt was an essential guard from decay, from spoiling. Notice in verse 13 that Jesus says, you are. He didn't say you need to be. In other words, Jesus is indicating a state, an indicative state, a state of existence that is to be. He didn't say you need to do a better job of this. He's saying I've left you there to delay or slow corruption. We have by being left in the world become agents of transformation as we slow decay, as we resist the deterioration of our society that results from sin. Just stop to think. Just stop to think if the Christian high view of the sanctity of life was no longer in our culture's conversation. And how dangerous it is when those who claim to be Christians say that they are willing to yield to the darkness of devaluing human life all for personal preferences of our sinful culture, giving up on that point so that they might approach another one, perhaps in the political arena. Just stop to think if the Christian voice was muted on the topic of God's ultimate authority in gender determination. How confused the world would be if we were unwilling to weigh in on that conversation that it is God who has made them male and female, yet to speak with God's authority and His tender love for those who have fallen prey to the confusion that might reign in their own minds. Just stop to think if the biblical view of sexual immorality is muted on the topic of same-sex unions and the growing sexual immorality that plagues our culture, how quickly the decay will increase if the biblical perspective is not part of the conversation. Jesus says, you are salt. Years back, I had a father in our congregation who called me and had been working with me over a course of many months in fear that his high school daughter was falling into a same-sex relationship. Because I knew her, I asked him if I could talk to her, and so we went out and had coffee or soft drinks. I don't know what we were drinking, but I just just talked to her with all of the love that a friend, a, a, a friend of a father, would give, but with a biblical perspective. And I told her, I said, "Listen, I understand that the world that you are living in is scary." that high school boys are scary, that the culture that we are part of is frightening because uh, the world around you is filled with all of these intentions of sexual immorality and, and acting it out, and that perhaps it has become for you safer to turn to this female friend. But I'm telling you that whatever has happened to this point, your past does not define you. 
and your confusion does not define you. And, and you know what? She heard, she allowed me to speak to her heart. Several years ago, I married her to one of the most wonderful young men, and now she is living life in Christ for Christ's glory as one who is living out God's intended purpose in her creation. We need to be impacted by the gravity of Jesus' characterization that the Christian is salt. Maybe you are on a low-sodium diet. Salt is not significant to you except at wintertime, and so you're not impressed with the importance of this characterization. But in the times that Jesus spoke this, salt was a precious commodity. We can drive by and see piles of it and not be impressed. But back then, it was a precious commodity. It was added in the establishment of a covenant to add weight and gravity to the, the covenant that was being established. Salt was so valuable that soldiers were paid in salt in that day, and that is where we get the expression, that man is not worth his salt. And you wonder about this thought thought of losing salt, losing its taste, he says, but if salt, verse 13, has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You know what? The reality is salt doesn't really lose its own taste. What Jesus is referring to is the corruption of salt, the adding of impurities. Gypsum also often got mixed in with salt so that when you tasted the in product, it was less salty than it should have been. And so I would ask you, are we the church, are you as citizens of the kingdom, allowing the impurities of the world to infiltrate your own life so that you don't become a guard for the corruption as you ought? Jesus indicates that we are the light of the world. You see, we are agents of community transformation light of the world, a city set on a hill, cannot be hidden. One of the glorious things that came out of the tornado that came through Washington was that this church, and I know that there were other entities like it, that became a light of a city set on the hill, became an agent for community transformation as the community and Bethany community uh, leading the way, perhaps, was part of loving and helping to bring restoration at a time of calamity and with the love of Christ, not just with some social uh, agenda. Jesus says you are the light of the world. He says this, he says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this before. You've no doubt read this or heard this passage before, but have you given thought to the fact that, well, the, the, the equal weight of this statement is that God is the one who lights us. In other words, Jesus is saying God didn't light you as a Christian for you to hide your light. And God doesn't intend your light to be hidden. And when we recognize that it's God that's involved in causing us to be salt and light, it helps us to understand that we have an agenda. We are called as the church, as individual Christians in our own circles of influence, as being agents for transformation. Why? Because we have first experienced transformation ourselves. 
Remember the Gospel of John, Jesus said, well, John said that Jesus is the light that shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, the darkness did not comprehend it. But then Jesus says, if we follow Him, we will be sons of light. We are to shine on evil deeds and not become part of the darkness. Friends, let's take heart in our commission here. And, and we've been given the adequate power to fulfill this commission by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As we are called to make disciples, the only way that we will do this is by first experiencing transformation that comes from relying on the cross, that life-changing bridge from death to life, from unbelief to belief. And then as those who have experienced that personal transformation and therefore corporate transformation, uh, we are called to be transformational Agents of transformation in our communities. Those are realities of kingdom citizenship. But there's a third reality. And while we deal with this third reality last, I'm going to tell you that it's actually the foundation. It is the basis both for personal transformation and becoming catalytic agents on the world around us. And the third mark of the citizen of God's kingdom is that he or she depends on Jesus Christ to meet the legal demands of God's law. This is none other than what we call salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not as a result of our works. It's interesting as we look at this passage and we think about how Matthew sets it up. He tells us in verse 1 that seeing the crowds... He, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth, and He taught them. Matthew, what he is doing is he is casting Jesus as Moses' terms, in Moses' terms. Recall that Moses went up on the mountain and received the law from God and then came down, and the people gathered at the base of the mountain. Moses said, don't even come any closer, but come close enough so you can hear, and then He taught them the law, the Ten Commandments. In fact, Moses had set this expectation up that one like him from Israel would come and the people must listen to him as they listened to Moses. So Matthew is setting up the scenario for the reader to think about Jesus in Moses' terms. And this was likely in the minds of the Jewish audience, but there's a problem. Jesus hasn't been teaching about the law. This was virtually blasphemous for the religious leaders. It seemed as if Jesus was dismissing the law of Moses. In fact, remember it says in John 5.18 that they sought all the more to kill Him. Why? Because He was breaking the Sabbath, claiming that He was equal to God and breaking the Sabbath. So what does Jesus feel about the law? What does He say about the law as He describes the kingdom citizens that would be those that would have received citizenship into the eternal kingdom? Look at verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
this is huge. This, is, this addresses the all-important law to those who are waiting to hear about how they should relate to the law, uh, whether or not they think they can keep it the way that they thought it should be kept or not, whether or not they can keep the law and think that they're qualified to enter God's kingdom. What Jesus is saying is that they should relate to the keeping of the law through Him. Jesus is saying that the law is as important as it has ever been, but where the audience was incapable of keeping the law, where you and I are incapable of keeping the law, Jesus is going to keep it, to fulfill it, to keep the laws, to fulfill the law's righteous demands for us. What Jesus wasn't concerned about were the extra rules, the extra issues that had been added to the law. The religious leaders who were listening to Him along with His disciples uh, were very intent on hearing how He handled Moses. They were thinking that they had kept the law perfectly. They had never murdered, and yet they had shown such hatred and disdain for those in Israel who had no hopes of looking squeaky clean through the law. They had never uh, violated what they thought was to honor their father and mother, and yet they had taken their parents, uh, their parents' inheritance and stopped caring for their parents. Jesus takes them to task on it at one point. The law required that the people of God not be murderers, but they had hate in their hearts. The law prohibited coveting, and while they were convinced that they themselves were content, the religious leaders were placing burdens on people so that they might control and gain wealth within the system of sacrifices, within the system of changing money for giving in the temple. They were like our modern politicians. If there's any here, don't take it personally. I'm talking about D.C. primarily. I mean, how in the world did Dennis Hastert, a high school history teacher who became Speaker of the House, get enough money to pay hush money in the terms of several million dollars? How does that happen? Unless you go to Washington, D.C. and become part of a system that was so much like the Pharisees, so much like uh, the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Jesus indicated here that He didn't come to release the requirements of God's law, God's standard of righteousness, but instead to fulfill those requirements. And we should never teach that the law is no longer important, but instead that Jesus came to perfectly meet the law's requirements for us. In fact, remember, Paul said to Timothy that the law is useful if it is used in the way that it ought to be used. Basically used to shine the mirror of sinful humanity back on itself so, to, so that it would see how it falls short of the glory of God and reach out, as Paul said, for a righteousness not of their own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That which comes through passing over the bridge, the cross that leads from sinful humanity to the eternal kingdom. Notice verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Also consider beyond our passage, verse 48 here of chapter 5, I tell you then, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, the law was given to us so that we would see what perfection looks like and we would see that we cannot meet those righteous standards. And we would look outside of ourselves for a righteousness apart from us, even apart from the law, but demonstrated through the law, righteousness which is found through faith in Jesus Christ who perfectly met the righteous demands of the law. Friends, we are called to rely on the bridge of the cross to become citizens of God's kingdom. And when we do that, we only do that because we become transformed, and we do become transformed. We become more humble than we were. We, we, we labor to become more and more humble. And as we are humble, God has left us in this dark world to be salt and light, to be agents of transformation to the communities, the workplaces where we are. But it's only by trusting depending on Jesus Christ to meet the legal demands of God's law that any of that happens. Two years ago at an Awana night, uh, one of our council teachers was trying to teach the impossibility of earning your way to eternal life by keeping the Ten Commandments. And as I was watching, I watched as it dawned on one of our third graders that he was not getting enough points in the lesson to satisfy the demands to enter into the kingdom of heaven on his own. I, I was sitting behind this young man, and, and he began to cry, I mean loudly, and I had no idea what was going on with him, and I rushed to him, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, I ought to be able to do this because I'm a good boy. I, my heart was ripped right open. But I was rejoicing that he came to this place where he could truly understand that, no, you cannot pass the test of the Ten Commandments. It is only by trusting in Jesus Christ and His fulfilling the law that you can enter in to eternal life. And you know what? In two weeks, that young man is going to get baptized because he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. He came to the end of himself, and that's where Christ met him with His righteousness available for that young man. I hope that's happened for you. I trust it has. As we come to worship together, I, I, I trust that you as a church also are always thinking about what it means to be a follower of Christ and what God wants from us as He sets us as salt, as light in our communities. And I hope that as you've thought through the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law's demands on our behalf, it's humbled you. To recognize that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Let's bow our heads as we close and as the worship team comes up. I just want to talk to the heart of someone who might be here who's never trusted in Christ. That You might have come to church many times. You might have uh, even gotten involved, but you've always wondered how good you needed to be in order to make it across the finish line of faith. And I'm here to tell you today that it's not possible for you. 
but Christ has done it on your behalf. And I'm, I'm inviting you to cross over the bridge that's represented by cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Cross over from your sinful state to eternity, to becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven here and now. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You can pray silently where you're at. And it's not the words that save. They're not magic. It's your heart that might appeal to God for a cleansed conscience. And if that's you and you're here and you just silently say, Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. And I realize that I can't save myself. I've tried by my own human efforts, and I constantly fail. But I do believe today that Jesus has satisfied the requirements of your law. And He has died in my place as my substitute. I believe that today. And I believe that not only did He die, but He was buried and then three days, He rose again. And I believe that that signals to me that you are satisfied with Christ's substitution for all who trust on Him, who all, for all who rely on His cross as a bridge to eternal life. And I receive Him this day as my Lord and Savior. And I pray that you would help me to live in a way that's pleasing to you, to turn away from those things in my life, even if it's my own human effort to please you and turn only to the satisfaction that can be found in Christ alone. Help me to live a life that's pleasing to you, the abundant life, and help me to strive to be an agent of transformation for all those around me. And I'll be, be, be thankful to live with you for eternity in Jesus' kingdom. And all God's people said, Amen.